Welcome to Be Curious the Of A Child Episode 38 Something like that I don't know, I've lost count, there's so many <laughs> Don't forget, if you enjoy this show, please rate us, review us and subscribe wherever you listen mm-hmm. Now, Anton, after the last episode, you asked me uh, Rather, I asked you what you'd like to cover next And you told me, didn't you? Mm-hmm and at the time I thought, oh, that's a great idea, that's a little bit fun, a little bit quirky and interesting, but wow, I did not realise just how many historic cans of worms this topic would be aiming. Yeah. And it's a uh, voracious eater as well. <laughs> so Anton, what are we talking about this episode? Ornithorhynchus anatinus. A whatinus? <laughs> a platypus. Oh, a platypus, okay, That yeah. rhymed very well. That's smooth. That was very smooth. We're <laughs> professionals. Yeah, that's right. Um, so we've got some science, some history, and some folklore all about the platypus this episode. And we even have a secret World War II mission. <gasps> which I know you're like, being a World War II buff. Now, I think in history, few animals probably caused as much controversy as the platypus has after reading a, a book on the subject. So, really? Um, mm, really, yeah. Whoa. Yep. Well, it's such an unusual creature, isn't it? Mm. But I thought, shall we begin with a story? Yay! I know you like story time. <laughs> okay, so this tale comes from the Aboriginal Rewarana people, and it's collected by David Unipon, and it goes like this. Long ago, the animals, birds and reptiles multiplied so greatly in numbers that the country in which they lived was not large enough to accommodate all of them. <laughs> the birds and the koalas, the kangaroos and the snakes and all the creatures gathered together to discuss the problem. Platypus, said Kangaroo, is so numerous that they outnumber the rest of us combined. Just look on either side of this range of mountains. Platypuses are in great numbers to be seen everywhere. The filled lizard, tired with the waiting, called down a storm of thunder and rain and lightning that wrecks the lands and washed away the platypus. <gasps> I know, dramatic. But three years later, a survivor was found. And no doubt, feeling a pang of guilt, the animals gathered together to help. But to which tribe did the platypus belong? The dock could see a resemblance in his bill. The pelican in her eggs. The lizards too, they confused, could see a link. And the mammals thought they were related as well. Kangaroo said the platypus could take any animal to be his bride. And he chose the bandicoot and hence was related to the hairy tribe. <laughs> Despite all the other animals reminding Platypus of his lizard-like eggs and dock build snout, and all the other similarities, he declined to be with them, instead simply being happy to be Platypus. And he <laughs> never forgot the day they cooled down the great storm that caused him such harm, which is why he stays so hidden away. <laughs> so that's a, yeah, an old Aboriginal story of mm. where the Platypuses come from. I'm not sure if you will, but uh, hopefully most of our listeners have seen at least a picture of a platypus. But they do look like loads of animals merged into one. They do, they're odd, aren't they? Mm. Which I think is why you chose them. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so I don't know how old this story is, but a lot of folk tales have a basis in fact, don't they? Mm-hmm. And there's flood myths from all over the world. So maybe it stretches right back to the last ice age. Yeah, because when the uh, ice melted... It would have lots and lots of water. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's just telling of a history of flooding in those regions. And you know, um, 
in the last couple of weeks, Australia's really been hit by fl- terrible flooding, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so perhaps these fake stories are a reminder of what's happened in the past. Yeah. Uh, but it's not just people who are being affected by the recent floods, it's the wildlife too. And I have an audio clip here from ABC News, which I'm going to play. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. ABC a platypus has survived floodwaters after a CPR rescue. Mary Valley resident Lady Penelope spotted the little fella in trouble once floodwaters had receded on Queensland's Sunshine Coast hinterland. I drove up to, to the main bridge into Imble off the Mary Valley Road and I noticed, well, I actually thought it was a dead baby duck at first and then realised it was a platypus and it wasn't breathing. And I've never been that close to a platypus. <laughs> and so that, I, I just panicked. I didn't know what to do. So I, before my brain kicked in, I, I just instantly started doing those two-finger compressions like we're taught to do on babies that aren't breathing. Oh. It sort of coughed and spluttered and started breathing again, which was just amazing. So I just instantly sort of collapsed into the mud with my happy tears and sat there with it until it went, yeah, about 10 minutes went past and it sort of looked at me and blinked its little eyes and sort of just very slowly walked back towards the water and eventually swam off. Um, it was just the most incredible thing. Oh, wow. So once you'd given it its little, you know, rescue manoeuvre, you just stood back and let it kind of recover and move on. Yeah, I figured it had had a pretty traumatic time to be washed up and not breathing. Um, and I didn't want to add to its stress. But, yeah, certainly one of the most joyous things I could have ever been a part of was to see it just get back into the water and swim away. (laughs) That is a truly touching story. (laughs) It is. We will have a link on our website in the show notes. Mm. Anyway, back to our episode. Back to the show. The year is 1798. We're on a lake near the Hawkesbury River, north of Sydney, in Australia. Now Sydney, back then it wasn't the modern city like it is today, having only been founded a decade previous as a penal colony where the British would send their prisoners. Uh, so the lands were still very strange, exotic and unexplored, okay? Mm-hmm. The governor of Sydney was a man called John Hunter and he watched as an Aboriginal court, a small amphibious animal of the mole kind. The creature may have been small but it was tenacious and it jabbed um, the spur of its hind leg into its attacker's arm. But that wasn't enough to save it. The platypus is one of only a small number of venomous animals. The males have a spur on their hind legs, which they use in defence, and inject a venom that contains more than 50 compounds. Yeah, and we've got a photo which I have in the show notes, and the, the length of it is about the width of a finger, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It looks weird. It's like just perched on the end of the foot. Yeah, it's odd. It's it's like a backwards-facing toe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you can see that being very painful. Yeah, and actually, it's reported to be very painful. It's um, like a so. giant thorn. It is, yeah. But there hasn't actually been any deaths, or at least no known deaths <laughs> due to it. Um, and I believe here you've got a report from eighteen eighteen. Accent. I'm not sure the Australian accent would have developed yet. All right, I'll just do my regular voice. I wounded one with a small shot, and on my overseer's taking it out of the water, it stuck its spur into the palm and back of his right hand with such force, and retained them in which such strength that they could not be withdrawn until it was killed. 
the hand instantly swelled to a prodigious bulk, and the inflammation having rapidly extending to the shoulder, he was in a few minutes threatened with lockjaw, and exhibited all the symptoms of a person bitten by a venomous snake. He was obliged to keep his bed for several days, and did not recover to perfect use of his hand for nine weeks. Yeah, so uh, a strong reaction, isn't it? Nasty. Yeah, very nasty. So I think we're probably safe in Guernsey from uh, platypuses. Mm. Because you don't want lockjaw when you're a podcaster. <laughs> so curious with his discovery, Hunter had the animal's skin placed in a keg of spirits and sent halfway around the world to the Literary and Philosophical Society of Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Now, once in England, the keg, it was being carried into the society's offices by a lady, but unfortunately it split when she was carrying it and she got actually covered in this in the liquid inside. Wow. It's just been horrible because it's had this dead animal in it and God knows what else. Um, but falling to the floor near her feet was a strange creature, half bird, half beast. <laughs> the shock of the platypus had reached to Europe. The platypus would receive wider attention when Thomas Berwick included it in the fourth edition of his general history of quadrupeds in 1800, <laughs> in which he wrote, It seems to be an animal of its own kind. It appears to possess a threefold nature, that of a fish, a bird, and a quadruped, and is related to nothing we have hitherto seen. So he's already confused, isn't he? Mm -hmm. What could this be? And we have an image in the show notes of a woodcut. So this would have been the first time many people had actually come across the platypus. And I think it looks a bit like a, um, a plushie. That's true. It looks a little bit chubby. And it's the way the legs kind of stick out to the side. Mm -hmm. An amphibious animal. Mm -hmm. So more pickled platypuses were sent to Europe, including <laughs> one to Dr. George Shaw, who was the assistant keeper of natural history at the British Museum, who named the creature... Platypus... Anatinus. Yeah. Platypus comes from Greek and it means flat-footed. And from Latin we get anatinus, meaning duck-like. <laughs> so a flat-footed duck-like creature. Mm -hmm. But the name's changed, hasn't it? Yeah, platypus was already taken for a species of insect. <laughs> flat-footed. Um, flat-footed insect, that's nice. Yeah. yeah, I think it was a type of beetle, so they couldn't use that again. Interestingly, that name is mm -hmm. still in common use, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But sure, he did question the authenticity uh, persisting that it might be a hoax. <laughs> because there was a well-known trade at the time of uh, peculiar taxidermic creations being brought back by sailors from the East. So did they think it was like half, like somebody had taken a, a fish and a duck or something and sewn it together? Of all the mammalia yet known, it seems the most extraordinary in its conformation, exhibiting the perfect resemblance of the beak of a duck engrafted on the head of a quadruped. I almost doubted the testimony of my own eyes. <laughs> now, another platypus skin was delivered to Johann Bumbach, a German scientist, and he was an important figure in the advancement of zoology and anthropology. And he wrote, do you want to try this one? How's your German accent? Yeah. <laughs> it needs not tell you how exceedingly I must be surprised by the view of so strange a creature as the Ornithorhynchus paradoxus. For being under the necessity of christening it, I thought this a convenient name. Yeah, so there we go. That's the rest of the naming puzzle for you. Um, because he didn't know that it's already been named by Dr. George Shaw. Mm -hmm. So Ornithorhynchus means bird-like beak. 
then paradoxes comes from its odd shape and characteristics. Mm-hmm. But so that does, changes again. It's like linking the two together. Exactly, yeah. So there's it's named by both names, which is... Ornithorhynchus and Latinus. Yes, which he seems to have a lot of practice saying for some reason. Hmm, I wonder why. Yeah, very odd. And there's an early picture there, which hopefully I can put in the show notes. That looks cool. Oh, there's uh-huh. very webbed feet. But yeah. it's, only, it's only the front ones. Yeah, the front ones are more webbed. It's a really unusual animal. Mm-hmm. But they've been around for quite a long time as well. They have. 166 million years, I think. Something like that. That's before the, some of the dinosaurs died, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So now that scientists knew about this creature and had given it a name, they had to work out exactly where it fitted with the rest of nature. Was it a mammal, a reptile, or something entirely new? When the first people who properly studied the anatomy was Everard Home, who wrote a series of papers from 1800 to 1802. He learnt that the beak wasn't part of the mouth, but was in fact an organ for exploring the dark, murky waters where the animal fed. Today we know a lot more about the bill and that it isn't sewed on. (laughs) Uh, It's not hard like a beak, but soft and covered in tiny hairs, yeah, that enable it to detect tiny electric fields given off by its prey of worms and shrimps, which are confined even in cloudy waters. When diving, it can close its eyes and ears and still scavenge. Yeah, so it picks up the tiny electrical signals being sent and they did some tests where they put them in tanks. Then they would drop a shrimp or something into it and it could be 10, 15 centimetres away and they would still be able to find it. That's cool. Yeah. I like how they can close their ears as well. They're not fully formed ears, they're more like little holes. Mm -hmm. Then it's a whole kind of little flap of skin that closes over them. (laughs) What? It's actually got a simpler, more primitive brain structure than most mammals. Um, It's got a smooth surface rather than our funny wrinkly surface that we have in our brains. That's cool. But its uh, cerebral cortex is still very well developed and that's probably due to how sensitive and um, its bill is and kind of all the senses it has there. The early studies that were performed by these scientists must have been on really poorly preserved specimens. Mm-hmm. They were basically pickled in barrels for several months on the voyage halfway around the world. So <laughs> it actually shows a remarkable understanding that um, anything could be ascertained from them. Mm-hmm. But this lack of on-the-ground research and observation in Australia itself is going to be a very long-running problem. So when Everard dissected the platypuses, he saw their reproductive organs were not like those of mammals, but rather appeared ovoviviparous. Ovo... Which I can't say now. Viviparous. Ovoviviparous. Close enough. So what does ovoviviparous mean? Ooh. Um... I'm not sure. Now, it's um, when a animal or an organism it forms the eggs actually inside their body, but it doesn't lay them. And instead, they develop fully and hatch inside the mother's body, mm. but still in a, like, an egg. Mm-hmm. So unlike a, a human. So think of it like a chicken that doesn't lay its egg. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Today, we know that the platypus does lay eggs, but for a long time, this was not thought to be the case and would be the course of... Decades worth of arguments. <laughs> However, when asked, many of the Aboriginals, they told colonists that, yes, they did lay eggs, but scientists back home in Europe thought this was a preposterous idea. A mammal that lays eggs? <laughs> Clearly these natives don't understand what they are seeing. Yeah. Mm. Even though they admitted that they had no idea what was before their eyes earlier. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And another odd thing about platypus is that they don't have any nipples. Oh. So how have the young suckle? 
anti-squared to ask. <laughs> okay. Um, but through his dissections, Everett Home also discovered that they only have one hole down below. They are monotremes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the male urinates from an opening at the base of his penis. Mm-hmm. So a little bit different to you, I think. Oh, the base. Oh, yeah, whoa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> These characteristics distinguish the ornithorhynchus in a very remarkable way from all the other quadrupeds, giving this new tribe a resemblance, in some respect, to birds and others to the amphibia, so that it may be considered as an intermediate link between the classes of mammalia. So they're starting to see, okay, this could be a link between different things. Because up until now, many leading scientists had seen all animals in a linear hierarchy with humans at the top and the lesser beasts below, from mammals descending lower down to birds and lizards and things, okay? And the platypus, they could kind of fit it in this order. It was a mammal-like creature with some features from a lizard. It was odd, but it worked. But since then, our understanding has come a very long way, and we now view life as a large tree of species branching off and evolving different characteristics, don't we? Mm-hmm. The monotremes, of which the platypus is only one of five surviving species, are called monotremata. And approximately 166 million years ago, uh, they split off from the early lizard-like proto-mammals, and they've stayed relatively unchanged compared to most other mammals ever since. So even is a very long time ago. It is, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, so who would have been walking the earth around then? The dinosaurs. Yeah. Yeah, I Amazing, mentioned that it? earlier, didn't I? Uh-huh. And even their brain structure and their gait is quite similar to a lizard with their legs out by the side. Mm-hmm. Are snakes monotremes? No, they would have split off from the sauropods all the way back here 351 million years ago. Ooh. And then that went off to birds and snakes and lizards and things. Mm-hmm. Now, there's an amazing fossil, which is 110 million years old. That's old. Yeah, it's very old. Older than granny. Oh, only just. Yeah. And it's from a ancient larger relative of the modern platypus. Mm-hmm. And part of it is actually opal, making it the only transparent fossil discovered. And there's a picture here, which I put in the show notes, which is of the jawbone. Whoa. How big would that be? I'm going to say, using my knowledge, <laughs> seven to eight centimetres. I've got no idea. It was bigger than the modern platypus, though, which is only, what, 30 centimetres big? In 1800, Napoleon ordered a scientific and political mission to New Holland, as Australia was then known. (laughs) The venture had 23 scientists, zoologists, botanists, mineralists, natural artists, and every other type of ist you can think of. (laughs) Despite being at war with England on the other side of the world, the French would enjoy friendly hospitality from the British at Port Jackson. And they would spend time together. The French would even invite the British onto their vessels for have a chat. Mm-hmm. But weren't the French ships very dirty compared to British ships? You just read my mind. I don't know if they still were there, yeah, but there are stories of yeah French ships being very stinky compared to the British ones. Mm-hmm. So perhaps they were. Sadly, however, only five of the scientists and artists would return to France. The rest died from disease and other dangers during the long expedition. So that's from, what was it, 23, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's not a very good survival rate. Mm-hmm. Very suspicious. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, maybe it wasn't so friendly with the British. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, he reported that it was friendly. Mm-hmm. 
They did, however, return to France with over 100,000 preserved animals, including 2,500 new species. That's a lot. How long were they there for? Would have been a few months, I think. Yeah, that's still a lot. They took with them a menagerie of live animals, including emus, kangaroos and wombats. And uh, during rough weather on their journey back, they would be put in the cabins to keep them safe, so the officers had to be outside on the deck bearing the (laughs) elements. Could you imagine that journey, though? (laughs) A kangaroo hopping around on this galley. They were live? Yeah, 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 live, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Not all, not all 100,000. All right, yeah, I thought they were, like, just... Most of them, well, most of them were probably preserved some things of them, but I didn't realise they were living ones. Uh-huh, yeah, they took some live animals back. George Curvier, he excitedly proclaimed, We have made known more new creatures than other travelling naturalists of recent times put together. Your French earlier was better. Well, I struggle with French. You're the one studying at school. <laughs> Francois Perron, who was a naturalist aboard the voyage, he wrote the startling findings. The science of New Holland defies our conclusions from any comparisons amongst our studies and shakes them to their foundations most firmly. So he's saying, yeah, what they've discovered, they're rocking everything they already know. The creatures that they were finding were different to the established ideas. Fortunately, um, Perun, he died aged only 35, described as an old man. The rigors (laughs) of the voyage had taken their toll on him. And for all their hard work and the loss of life, much of the information they had actually gathered wasn't made available for a long time. I think it's still just left locked up in one of the museums, which is really sad. Mm. I think what they've gone through. Um, but I guess a lot of that probably came down to the political unrest in France at the time. Mm. Now, do you remember that I said that the platypus lacks nipples? Mm. I mean, how could you forget that? <laughs> and this was going to cause a problem and even more arguments. So uh, why are mammals called mammals? Because they have mammae, or mammae. And what are they? Oh, glands. They're the milk gland things. They, like, create the milk. Yes, yeah. I remember learning that in science, actually. Well done, yes. And they've got nipples, generally. <laughs> um, and even our smiles have nipples for some unknown reason. Mm-hmm. The French naturalist, Jean-Baptiste Lemergue, who had some early ideas in evolution, he didn't know where to place platypuses or echidnas in the tree of life, so he actually made a new class for them to sit in. Um, because to him, they were not mammals as they had no mammary glands, not a reptile as the heart was wrong, and not a bird as they don't have wings. <laughs> so he stuck them in their whole new order. In 1824, the German comparative anatomist Johann Meckel announced that he had discovered mammary glands, but no nipples. <laughs> Um, but they were very primitive. But not everyone was agreeing with his findings, including Everard Holmes, who up until now had been the leading figure. And um, he said that the German had the imagination of a mind prepossessed with the existence of Mamey. After examining three more bodies himself, he still couldn't find any evidence. But Holmes was beginning to think that they may actually in fact lay eggs. And this was backed up by the report starting to return from Australia. However, everything was still pretty vague at the time and there were lots of conflicting ideas going around. Mm-hmm. Um, but French biologist uh, Georges Cuvier, he had the correct idea. And he said what was required was a trained anatomist to describe exactly these eggs, their origin within the body and their development after being deposited outside the body, and that the debates could only be settled by those who observe a living animal. Which is right, isn't it? I mean, if you're trying to do science, it makes sense to actually go and look at what it is that you're trying to study. Mm -hmm. So enter Richard Owen, good first name. (laughs) 
At only 24 years of age, he was ready to get to the bottom of the mysteries of this most paradoxical creature. Initially, he supported Home in his belief that there were no mummy. I see what it is, because it's like mummy. And usually the females have like the nipples. The working ones. Yep. Yeah. The functional ones. And it's mummy. I see where where it happened. Okay. Yeah, very good. <laughs> As I was saying, initially Owen uh, supported Holmes in his belief, but this changed in 1831 when Lieutenant Mordedale Moore, who was stationed in Australia, wrote to the Zoological Society of London. During the spring of 1831, being detached in the interior of New South Wales, I was at some pains to discover the truths of the generally accepted belief, namely that the female platypus lays eggs and suckles its young. Yeah, so he's on the right idea there, isn't he? Mm -hmm. What he's heard. So he uncovered a nest with a female and two young, which he tried to keep alive, but he failed at this task. But he did observe that... Milk oozed through... The fur on her stomach. Yeah, so uh, he saw milk. And this body was sent to Richard Owen and his examinations of it. And several other platypuses confirmed that they do produce milk, but have no nipples. <laughs> Don't know why I'm so obsessed with nipples here. Uh, I mean, you always have been. <laughs> <laughs> wow, the, the uh, truth is coming out this episode. <laughs> now, over the next decade, Owen would become the leading figure of authority demonstrating that they do produce milk and rebuffed any claims to the country. But the question of their reproduction egg-laying still needed to be fully answered. And there had been reports from colonists in Australia, such as Sir John Jameson in 1816, saying that the female is oviparous, so that's egg-laying. Mm-hmm. Um, and also in 1821, naval surgeon Patrick Hill sent a report to Oxford University that the Aboriginal elders knew that they laid eggs. So again, maybe we should listen to the people who've been living with them for this all this time. Hmm, yes, or the kangaroos. It is a fact well known to them that they lay two eggs about the size, shape and colour of those of a hen. Hmm. So they're like actual eggs, not like little, almost frog-spawn eggs. Owen had made friends with the adventurous George Bennett when they studied together in the 1820s. Now, not content with life at home, Bennett liked to travel, and soon he was in Australia, perfect for Owen, who had a man on the ground, and he greatly assisted Owen in his studies and rise to prominence. Bennett himself, he was an aspiring naturalist and no intellectual slouch, and he understood the importance of observation and said of the European-based thinkers, the majority preferred forming theories of their own and arguing over their plausibility to devoting a few leisure days to the collection of facts by which the question might be set to rest forever. It would take more than a few leisure days to discover all there is to know about Ornithorhynchus anatomus. They're very shy creatures and surprisingly good diggers, creating long burrows and riverbanks where they may spend 17 hours a day. When nursing young, they'll plug the ends in, making them really hard to spot. The entrances can even be made uh, underwater. The burrows can reach 16 metres long with twists and turns along their path. Pretty impressive work for an aquatic animal, less than 30 centimetres big. As well as living underground, they also spend a lot of time in the water, where they can quickly duck and hide if disturbed. See what I did there, duck, duck's bill? Oh, very good. (laughs) Yeah, amazing. They've got these really big nests, which you wouldn't think of. 
is you mentioned their front feet earlier. How do they dig? During the 1830s, Bennett would capture many platypuses, digging up their burrows at different times of year in an attempt to try and understand their reproductive nature. He even attempted to tame some, hoping to take them to England, but was unable to keep them alive in captivity for very long. And he was also surprised by just how much they ate, because a single platypus would eat what he thought would feed five. Whoa. Bennett, however, he was a busy man and he had soon had tasks of his own, so Owen had to turn to others to aid in his research. Um, and he requested that more ornithorhynchus should be shot and pickled for his study, saying, One hundred would not be too many. A hole should be cut in the belly and spirit thrown in. And then she should be placed in spirits bodily. If the keg is two-thirds or more filled with specimens, the spirit should be changed once or twice before they are finally packed off. But specimens, they were slow and hard to come by. And Owen's belief that the platypus hatches eggs internally only grew stronger with time, and in the 1860s he was becoming more and more dismissive of any suggestions to the contrary. Hmm. But he's, he's requesting a lot, isn't he? He's saying, oh, I need hundreds of these dead animals to be sent to me. Yeah. But you can see it's quite an interesting change there, because as a young man, um, he was very much for finding actual evidence and questioning the perceived ideas, but with um, age, he was beginning to stagnate, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. And that's why it's important that people understand the scientific process and that it's a continual progression of knowledge and understanding, questioning, challenging, testing, reaffirming and replacing of ideas. Scientists should transcend beliefs um, because it's meant to be built on a foundation of inquiry and change, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Because you need to remember the background of all of these debates was the very underpinnings of the organisation of nature and these odd Aussie animals had really thrown a spanner in the works. Mm-hmm. So the accepted beliefs, and Christian belief was a large part of it here, was in creationism and the unique ordering of life um, being from the mind of one creator being, yeah? Mm -hmm. So um, the confounding facts of the platypus, echidna, marsupials and more were beginning to make people think differently about the origins and development of life. So they also piqued the interest of a certain Charles Darwin, I imagine you've heard of? Only just. (laughs) (laughs) And he recounted. In the evening, we went with a gun in pursuit of platypi and actually killed one. I consider it a great feat to be in at the death of so wonderful an animal. Quite an odd way of thinking today, isn't it? Mm -hmm. He obviously had a massive love of animals and nature. And, oh, fantastic. I saw one shot. He also wrote... I had been lying on a sunny bank and reflecting on the strange character of the animals of the country and as compared to the rest of the world, a disbeliever in everything beyond his own reason might exclaimed, surely two distinct creators must have been at work. Yeah, so for him they were so different, thinking, how could the god who had made all the animals in Europe also have made these in Australia? Mm-hmm. It's almost like they that if there were two creators, they were like working together in this one because the platypus is so, so yeah. different. That, like Bob did one half, Joe did the other half or something. It's a great collaboration. Mm-hmm. That's all. Oh, and with the um, front having the bill, actually the front's probably more like a duck because it's got the webbed feet mostly at the front and not mm-hmm. so much at the back. And then at the back, it's like a, I don't know, an otter or something. Yeah, not sure a beaver tail or something. Mm. Yeah. The platypus, 
It appeared to be an ancient link between lizard and mammal. In fresh water, we find some of the most anomalous forms now known to in the world. The Ornithorhynchus, which, like fossils, connect to a certain extent orders now widely separated in the natural scale. These anomalous forms may almost be called living fossils. They have endured to the present day from having inhabited a confined area and thus being exposed to less severe competition. Except from the, the wise lizard thunder. Oh, the field lizard. Yes. <laughs> Unfortunately for Owen, he found himself stuck more with his belief of his theories and the evidence that he was being given. And the younger generation of scientists, many excited by the writings of Darwin, didn't see him in a good light. Owen is both feared and hated, wrote S.W. McLean in 1851. It is astonishing with what intense feelings Owen is regarded by the majority of his contemporaries. So, going from a bit of a hero to a bit of a zero. Mm -hmm. So just like we needed a young Richard Owen from 50 years earlier, we now needed a young anti-Owen. <laughs> and we just so happened to get one in a Scottish embryologist by the name of William Cardwell. He arrived in Australia in 1883, and he was well-equipped to finally solve this mystery. Now, Bennett, remember Owen's friend? He had later write to Owen that he had no way to compete, as he was only an amateur and he simply didn't have the resources of these young professional scientists. So there'd been a real change here from a gentleman scientist to a much more professional discipline. Mm -hmm. Oh, I just spotted a cat in the outside of the lab. Oh, hello. Um, curiosity lab. Yeah, it's a curiosity kitten. <laughs> well, that could be a good t-shirt and a nice cute kitten on it. I could actually. Oh, we've got a merchandise store, I believe, haven't we? Mm, yes, shop.thecuriosityofacharge.com, I think. That's it. <laughs> anyway, if you wanted to determine if platypuses lay eggs or not, what would, what would you do? How do you solve that? Watch them. Watch them. Very good. Although the, that's hard because they're shy. They are shy, yes. Cardwell had a different idea. He just killed lots of them. <laughs> because that's how they did things back then. Assisted by a team of 50 Aborigines, he dug up as many nests as he could. And he told George Bennett that he had killed over 70 females in one area and would do the same down in another river. <laughs> so to our modern eyes, these methods seem very crude, don't they? Mm. Um... It's as if the quest for knowledge comes at the expense of the thing you're actually studying. Mm -hmm. But only one year into his mission, on the 24th of August, 1884, he managed to shoot a platypus in the process of laying eggs. Oh, how lucky. Yay! <laughs> We've done it, haven't we? <laughs> when he had arrived in Australia, Cardwell, um, he'd actually believed that they give birth to live young, but seeing the evidence before his eyes, he had solved the 90-year-old mystery. Forgetting that the Aboriginals have been telling us this for years. Hmm. 90 years, though. It's quite a long time. It is, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But, um, Cardwell, he did acknowledge the Aboriginal people. Without the services of these people, I should have had little chance of success. I can't do accents. No. <laughs> well, at the start of the episode, I said there was a secret World War II mission, didn't I? Mm -hmm. But World War II is over 50 years away. <gasps> So shall we leap forward in time? They're making darts from the, like, thorn feet of the males. So oh, yeah. they're, they're weaponizing platypi. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, no. 
So by the mid-1900s, we got much better at keeping platypuses alive in captivity. And the leading expert was a chap called David Flea, also known as the Platypus Man. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. He would successfully breed the first platypuses in captivity. Oh, I thought he looked like a platypus or something. <laughs> No, no, he was just the best platypus keeper ever. Oh. So he he had a platypusery, which is an artificial <laughs> habitat which mimicked their natural environment. That's nice. Mm-hmm. I might use that in the third verse of something. Oh, yeah. However, in the March of 1943, as war raged across the globe, Flea was approached by two officials from the Commonwealth Department of Health, carrying orders from no less than Winston Churchill himself, which must be kept. Churchill had cabled Australian Prime Minister John Curtin with an odd request. He wanted no less than six live platypuses to be sent to the United Kingdom. Is it platypuses or platypi? You can use either. The book I read said platypuses. I quite like the sound of platypi more. So do I, but... Yeah. I was was using this book as my authoritative source. Alright. Um... Yeah, so Flea, he said that the request was the... Shock of a lifetime! (laughs) He sounds like a scouser. (laughs) Have I managed to do this so badly? All right. Kangaroo, koala, shock of a lifetime. And he never knew exactly why Churchill made this peculiar request. No living platypus had ever reached Europe before, so Flea had a tricky task ahead. And he refused to send six of his beloved animals, and instead caught and selected only one platypus to make this voyage by sea. Mm. And guess what they chose to call this monotreme? Winston. Yeah, Winston. <laughs> After the big man himself. <laughs> <laughs> Did he put like a hat on him or something? He should have done the yeah, cigar in his mouth. <laughs> and he's always drunk. <laughs> um, the precious passenger would require careful attention during the long voyage, so Flea set about training a special crew member who would act as the platypus keeper and also build a uh, bespoke platypusery, which would be on the ship and would protect it from the buffeting and swaying of the vessel in the waves. Mm-hmm. By May, Churchill was getting impatient and urged the Australian Minister of Foreign Affairs to hurry things along during a meeting in Washington. It's obviously an important meeting, probably with um, Roosevelt, mm-hmm. uh, about... What's going on in the war? Oh no, Churchill. Instead, he made sure that this telegram was sent. It said... Kangaroo, koala. Churchill at Washington. Most anxious that the platypus should leave immediately. What is present situation? But Churchill, he'd have to wait until September for the platypus to actually depart aboard the ship Port Phillip with a enough... Earthworms, crayfish, mealworms, and fresh water to have refueled Winston on a complete round-the-world voyage. <laughs> and he sailed the Pacific, and then up through the Panama Canal, then into the Atlantic Ocean. So what sort of dangers would you find in the Atlantic during World War II? Sharks. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, U-boats. Yeah, German U-boats. So do you think they will make it? The platypus is going to save the day. Okay. Or the, no, the platypus is going to swim. Okay, <laughs> let's find out, shall we? So here they are in the Atlantic, and um, Winston is still in good shape. And they're just four days from England. <gasps> Churchill was preparing 
the Royal Zoological Society to receive a special operative from Australia. I'm, I'm scared because you're keeping the next bit very I hidden. I'm keeping it very dramatic here. <gasps> the ship Sonar picked up a German U-boat, so they discharged the depth charges into the ocean. <laughs> Splashing into the ocean, they sunk under the waves, sinking towards the enemy submarine and exploded. <laughs> it exploded. But our delicate platypus with his sensitive bill was killed by the shock. Oh no. Winston! Did reach his namesake. <laughs> as he was stuffed and had pride of place on Churchill's desk. Oh, that's nice. Oh, I'm just imagining like his Winston Churchill's name tag and then but in front of the pla- stuffed platypus says Winston, uh-huh. a Winston Churchill. <laughs> so what an odd mission, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. So why do you think Churchill might have requested that? I have no idea. Just to see if it dies, I don't know. Do you think it was almost like a, we are the British Empire, we can still do this, despite wartime we can bring this sensitive animal all the way around the world? Or something? Just a... Maybe. Show of power? <laughs> I don't know. I, do you not know? Did you see it anywhere? No, no, I don't know. Oh, that's uh, weird. People don't know why he, why he did it. It's very odd. It's just heard of this animal. Oh, I know what it was. He hmm. accidentally wrote, like... Australian instead of American and platypus instead of like something else and it was meant to be like German t- tanks <laughs> yeah I don't know oh Pershing or something yeah um so just like Winston Churchill was very curious about platypuses uh this the study of them continues to this day yes it does. In 2020, scientists discovered they glow under ultraviolet light. Paula Anik said, was a little flabbergasted to see the platypus is biofluorescent. No one knows why they glow, but it might help them hide from predators. That's what it was. Winston knew it was like... That's, that's why he's a secret super weapon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sure uh, Paul is going to love your uh, <laughs> impression of her. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so there's a picture here which um, we'll have in the show notes which shows them glowing different colours under different types of light. They dead. Yeah, it's a dead one, mate. Oh. There's been thousands killed for this episode, Elaine. Yeah. And they actually look like they'd lay more on the underside. So I think that might be, if they're swimming on the surface of the water. It might camouflage them from predators below, which are looking up, and then against the UV lights in the sky. Yeah, maybe. But there's... Probably, actually. But they go, like, down to the uh, river bed. When they're feeding, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, that's only really when they're eating, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Yeah, the platypus has also had its DNA sequenced and uncovered the complex sex chromosomes Mm -hmm. and showed the links to birds and reptiles, which those early scientists... um, are starting to understand themselves. It's pretty impressive, I think, mm-hmm. even though they had to kill about a trillion to do it. And also that monotremes are the most distant uh, living relative to what's called the basal animal that marked the split of mammals and reptiles however many million years ago I said earlier. A lot. 116? That was a later split of mammals than there was the reptile yeah. one. I was like 203 million years ago or something. Well, still a long time ago. A long time ago, yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. 
Their long, long survival and evolution has made them tough. The human immune system has 15 natural killer receptor genes. The platypus, 214! Yeah, they are tough, despite their size. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, this and their venom. It could have great medical and antimicrobial benefits. Mm-hmm. And just any further understanding of life on Earth. So the platypus, it has taught us many things about nature and still does to this day. Its odd appearance and quirky genes and evolution make it unique among animals. Something extra special that reveals the incredible diversity of life and nature. The long-running arguments that we've only touched on today remind us to keep questioning, keep re-evaluating what we know, what we believe we know. Mm. They tell us to seek evidence and proof, to be keen observers and not let our egos cloud our understanding. As new generations made new discoveries that replaced or surpassed the old, they showed how science does work, does find the answers, even in a creature that has changed so little in 100 million years. And if you want to know more about the discoveries, the people and the history of this amazing animal, check out Platypus by Anne Moyle. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes at thecuriousnifferchild.com. Is that the book? Uh, that is the right. book, yeah. Just checking. I always like when you sum everything up because you get this unexpected thing from like a platypus for example oh thank you like that thank you i I try and bring it all together at the end and speaking of the end i think that's a wrap platypism had to die to satisfy old science guys ralph therefore waterproof and insulation found on the east side of the australian nation with a duck's bill the body of an otter on the tail of a beaver it lays eggs like a chicken as an octopus seaver despite all this or it means a mammal has no teeth so no enamel the duck-built platypus better than his ornithorhynchus anatomist. That's ridiculous. Did no one has a venomous piece by the matches supporters? Thought to be ovoviviparous, but only ovoviviparous. You know, that's the platypus. It pees from a hole in the base of its penis. Well, that most certainly was a wrap. <laughs> that was a hell of a wrap. Well uh-huh. done. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode on the platypus and mm-hmm. learnt lots of things and realised, yeah, what a odd creature it is. Mm-hmm. I was not expecting so much materi- material of that because I just said, like, you asked me, what should we do next episode? And I was just like, platypus. <laughs> I was just thinking about that at the time. Yeah, I wasn't expecting all that history and the arguments mm-hmm. and things there. Um, but it was interesting to read about and learn about. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, we are on social media, aren't we? Yep. At Pod, and that's what on Twitter, Instagram. Facebook, everywhere. Just search for the Curiosity of a Child and you'll find us mm-hmm. or Curiosity of a Child podcast. Mm-hmm. We also have merchandise that you mentioned earlier. Oh, yep. You could get awesome hoodies. Oh, we're actually wearing T-shirts now. Oh, yeah. Uh, Only T-shirts. Oh, we've got a nice... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we've got a nice little baby onesie sort of thing saying... Well, you have to find out. You have to find Shop. out. It's, it's beautiful, though. Mm-hmm. Shop.thecuriosityofachild.com That's right, yeah. And go to curiosityofachild.com to see all our episodes and show notes. And please take a moment to review us on Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening, or if you're on Podchaser at the moment, every review um, that they receive for any podcast, particularly ours, hint, hint, <laughs> um, they will donate some money to charity during the month of April. So please go and do that. All right, and also, I have got a YouTube channel. You do, don't you? Yes. Yeah, I do. Lots of fun gaming. 
mostly Minecraft. Um, and at time of recording, I've got about, what, 150-something subscribers. Oh, yep. <laughs> um, and my most viewed video at the moment... Over 5,000 Yeah, views. over 5,000, yeah, which is awesome. Yeah. I was not expecting it to get that big. Yeah, you seem more enthusiastic about that than my Patipus podcast. Um, I mean, I wrote a whole rap for you. You can't say you anything. You did, sorry, actually, yeah, I took these words back. I'm very sorry. Um, speaking of podcasts and everything, we are part of the That's Not Canon Network, and um, we like to promote another show from them. So we have one here, the trailer. But before that, sorry, I think we're going to say goodbye. Oops, I thought wrong. <laughs> yeah, so we have another trailer here for the, what's it called? The Ancient and Esoteric Order of the Jackalope. <laughs> there are known knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns. But there are also unknown knowns. The Ancient and Esoteric Order of the Jackalope is a secret society devoted to unearthing and sharing this forgotten knowledge. Each episode, we take one of these strange stories and share it with you. No topic is off limits, except for the obvious. Available wherever fine podcasts are sold. I like the sound of that. I think our episodes almost fits into that as well. Yeah, I was about to say, it it? seems quite fitting. Yeah. I like the sound of that. Yeah, maybe I'd give it a listen. Actually, I did listen to a couple of episodes. I was doing it. It's good. That's nice. Yeah. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this, and um, I'll need to get Anton to think of another episode topic. Yep. Uh, I might even write another rap, which is a bit scary. <laughs> yes. So, uh, we'll see. No promises this time. No promises. Don't worry, I'll pressure him into doing it. <laughs> I mean, it depends what we're doing the episode on. Anyway, thank you very much. Um, enjoy your time. Stay safe, stay curious. And remember, always question things and find the true answers. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's deep words again there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, goodbye and good night. Oh, actually, Ooh, wait, if this is good night, go back to the beginning of the episode where we did like our, our story. Yeah, bedtime story, yes. And then just leave it playing again for the rest of it. Maybe on the week whilst you're sleeping so we get more listeners. Yeah, more relaxed. Yeah. Okay, good night. Bye. Platypism had to die to satisfy old science guys. Ralph therefore waterproof and insulation found on the east side of the Australian nation. With a duck's bill, the body of an otter on the tail of a beaver, it lays eggs like a chicken as an octoceber. Despite all this, it remains a mammal, has no teeth, and no enamel. The duck built platypus better than his ornithorhynchus anatomus. It's ridiculous, did no man is a venomous, pleased by the matches supporters. Thought to be ovoviviparous, but only ovoviviparous. You know, that's the platypus. It pees from a hole in the base of his penis. <laughs> <laughs>